0: Today is May 3, 2010, and my guest is Ed Lemer, the Chauncey J. Medbury Chair in Management at UCLA. Ed, welcome back to Econ Talk.
1: It's great to be back.
0: Ed, the topic for today's podcast is the state of econometrics, the application of statistical techniques to, economet- uh, to economic questions. Now, a few weeks ago, Tim Harford wrote a piece in the Financial Times referencing a famous article that you wrote back in 1983 called Let's Take the Con out of econometrics. Harford argued we'd finally succeeded in solving at least one crucial problem. It did take 27 years, but we finally removed the con and we've got more honesty. And in particular, he was focused on the identification problem. And what he claimed is, he was referring to other work by uh, Angrist and Pischke, two econometricians, who argued that by the use of so-called natural experiments and modern techniques, we've been able to get a much better assessment of Relationships in, in economic data, and first, I want to go. I want to ask you to talk about your piece in 1983, and what was the con that you were saying is in econometrics that we ought to be aware of?
1: Well, I, the con is that um, depending upon what model you select, you happen to uh, use for analyzing a data set, you can get dramatically different uh, estimates and dramatically different conclusions. And economists had not spent enough effort alerting their customers to that sensitivity. And, and that's the con. You're pretending that the data sets are, more, are, are providing more clear information than they possibly can because the econometric method requires you to make a complete commitment to assumptions that you have, a, at best, a half-hearted commitment to. So I was arguing, well... We, what we need to do is develop tools that uh, in, that individuals can use, researchers can use, that would separate sturdy from fragile inferences. The sturdy ones that are the ones that don't depend much on on uh, ambiguous assumptions. The fragile ones change um, with a very slight change in the model that you happen to use. So we need, first of all, tools that will help us sort the sturdy from the fragile conclusions. And then secondly, we need a method uh, of, of communicating that in articles that we write and a culture that is receptive to that. A culture as it is, has been now is a, uh, a maximize the T kind of culture, which is a way of saying finding some, find something in the data set. And there are two things, two reasons why there might not be much in the data set. One is the data set is too small and or too... Uh, what the econometricians call collinear. Um, <clears throat> the other one is that the that the uh, assumptions that you need are are not really really credible. Let's and talk. Economists by and large don't want to hear that kind of negative thought. No, they want to imagine no. that they're making <laughs> major conclusions from their data sets.
0: Sure. Uh, l- let's make a few clarifying uh, remarks first. When you talk about a t, so the t statistic on a variable in a statistical study is a measure of how Likely or unlikely is it that this relationship that we found in the data is due to chance? Uh, correct. So a high T, high T statistic would mean it's it's very likely that this relationship is actually there and not just some fluke. Is that a correct way to say it?
1: That's correct. And the, the word that the statisticians have suggested is statistically significant, which we. Summarize as significant, but significant really means important, and it's not the same. No. So I highly recommend that we use the word measurable. You want to know whether this data set allows you to measure the effect, whether the effect is big in an economic sense is a totally separate issue. So you you set it more as a statistician, word, and I tend to prefer the word
0: measurable. Well, McCluskey and Zilliac have a book where they attack the whole concept of... of modern econometrics on the grounds that we've become obsessed with whether the relationship uh, between two variables is is significant, but it could be very unimportant. It could be very small in its magnitude or impact, but it's significantly different from zero, meaning it's not due just to chance. But it may not be very important, and that that's a that's a key distinction that we care about as economists.
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. We don't have a, a um, we don't often have a conversation about what size of variable, what size of coefficient. We need in order for this to be an important effect. And that's a difficult conversation to have. But So instead, we turn it over to statisticians who uh, decide what's significant or not based on these T values that really don't have anything to do with the setting. They're, they're context free, and economists need to impose uh, more order in the conversation and not relinquish the most important decision, which is to decide whether this is really an important variable or an important effect.
0: Going back to your description, your 1983 article, you mentioned uh, being explicit about our assumptions or how, or how sensitive our, our results are to our assumptions. When economists talk about their assumptions, they're usually talking about things like businesses – or I'm going to assume that businesses are profit-maximizing or I'm going to assume that individuals maximize their utility. But in statistical work, in econometrics, when you talk about assumptions, you're talking about very – Specific assumptions about the nature of where the data come from, the, the the way the errors might be distributed. Right, it's a slightly different, or whether the where the relationship is linear, whether it's quadratic, cubic. Right, when you talk about assumptions, that's what you have in mind.
1: Yeah, exactly. There, the, you hit upon what I think is the critical um, task in the art of drawing inferences from uh, data sets. It's how. Uh, to translate a conceptual framework, a theory, a model, which by its very nature is a simple version of reality, how you translate that into a data, into a compelling, persuasive data analysis. For example, you, you, your theory might say that demand curves slope downward. Well, th- that, that's not nearly uh, as complete a uh, statement that, uh, that is needed for an econometrician or a statistician to to do the data analysis, the data analysis requires that you select a particular functional form, that you select a, a, a um, you allow for the fact that this year's consumption may depend on last year's prices as well as today. You have to think about the other variables. Tomorrow's the, as well. <laughs> and tomorrow's as well, expectations. Yeah. And you have to think about the uh, other variables that are going to drive the uh, demand and not just the price. So if a theorist can get away Making a a vague statement that quantity demand depends on price. But a data analyst has to fill that in to make a very, very explicit model that has no doubt associated with it. If there's any doubt, it's the random error, the error term that we tack into that and onto that model. But the doubt about that is relieved too by distributional assumptions about which the Economists, uh, the theorists, have no opinion whatsoever. So there's a huge uh, step between uh, a conceptualization of the problem and building a model that can capture that framework.
0: So for those listeners out there who aren't practicing economists or would-be economists, I know some of you out there are graduate students or undergraduates in economics or – professors of economics, but many of you out there are just uh, normal human beings. So for you out in the listening audience, I want to set the stage to give you a better feel for what we're talking about. In in an economics journal or a medical journal, for example, in, say, epidemiology, where we're going to look at the relationship between, say, uh, drinking and cancer, or in economics between some piece of legislation like the minimum wage and whether it affects employment or not what you 'll find somewhere in that article, if it 's an empirical article based on data, is a table or a chart that purports to show that the relationship between the two variables we care about is of such and such a magnitude and is there and is due to uh, not due to chance, and that would be the statistical significance. What is hidden from us as the readers and is the unspoken secret that Ed Lemer is referring to in his article in 1983 is we don't get to go in the kitchen with the researcher. We don't see all the different regressions, statistical pieces of analysis that were done before the chart was finished. The chart is presented as objective science. But those of us who've been in the kitchen, and I've been in the kitchen a little bit, and Ned's been in it a lot, and anybody who's an empirical economist has been in it a lot – Uh, What actually goes on isn't – you don't just sit down and say, I think these are the variables that count, and this is the statistical relationship between them, and I'm going to do my analysis and then publish it. If you do that and you don't get anything that's significant, which happens tons of times, you you convince yourself rather easily that you must have had the wrong specification you left out a variable or you included one you, should, you shouldn't you should have included or you should have added a squared term to allow for a nonlinear relationship until eventually you craft, sculpt a piece of work that is a conclusion and you publish that and you show that there is a relationship between A and B, X and Y. And um, your point, at is that if you haven't shown me all the steps in the kitchen – I don't really know whether what you found is robust.
1: Yeah, your reference to kitchen reminds me of that old joke that, that's used in many different ways, but it's that there are two things that you don't want to see in the making. One is econometric estimates, the other one is sausages.
0: Right, it's a variation.
1: It's such a yeah. dirty process.
0: Yeah, and why? Well,
1: let's go back to another example that I like to use quite a bit, which is um, the theory might suggest that a feather uh, in a vacuum will accelerate at a constant rate at when it falls. But economists don't observe feathers in the vacuum. They observe feathers w- when the wind is blowing, when the humidity varies, when the, the, the in the evening, in the morning, there's tons eagle of feathers, ex- duck right? fe- There's eagle feathers,
0: there's duck feathers. Yeah, exactly. So there's tons of
1: things that are going to affect the speed at which this thing falls. And the theorist has allowed to Hypothesize the vacuum, but the real world doesn't have that vacuum. So you got to make a way. You got to translate that into a real, a, a complete model with all the controls, the kinds of things that we're just identifying. But you and I can sit down there and thinking about different controls, different other variables, and you'll come up with a different list, and I'll come up with a different list. Tomorrow I'll come up with a different list from the one that I did today. That's a sensitivity issue. That, that we want to make sure that an adequate range of alternative models has been studied and, and confirmed that all the reasonable models lead to about the same conclusion, in which case you get the sturdy inference, or uh, what seemed like uh, small changes in the models, the kind of things that that economists would be willing easily to entertain, lead to dramatically different conclusions. That's a fragile estimate and not to be believed.
0: And so you suggested that we should... Alongside this beautiful work of art, the sculpture where uh, you took out just the right things and added just the right ingredients, you should also include some of your souffles that fell, some of your dishes that, uh, that didn't make it so that the reader could judge whether you're cooking up something or whether it just actually there's a real relationship there. How has the profession reacted to that suggestion about sensitivity?
1: A little bit of that is done. means economists will often report, uh, have a table of alternative estimates, but there's no, uh, there's been no awareness uh, that this is a critical issue, a critical professional issue, that unless we resolve this problem of sensitivity of our conclusions with with regard to changes in assumptions, then we're not going to have credible uh, econometric estimates, and the con will remain. So I, I think that We've done a lot of work with economic theory, a lot of work with complex uh, econometrics over the decades since I wrote that piece, but we have not made a lot of progress in, uh, in building tools for identifying sensitivity of our conclusions to the assumptions or, uh, or, or reporting adequately that sensitivity. We still are pretty much in the same page that we were, same operating procedure that we were 30 years ago, which is to... Um, is to cook the books, if you want to put it that way.
0: And being an economist, my first thought as to why that is is because there's no incentive, unfortunately, for it to be otherwise. But I I want to come back to that uh, because I think that's an interesting sociological and philosophical question. But staying on track, uh, at least for the moment, talk about what some of the more recent techniques are in econometrics, particularly the use of instrumental variables to create what are so-called, these so-called natural experiments, and what the proponents are claiming about that, those techniques, and then, well, and then yeah. why you're skeptical of them.
1: Well, the Ingrist and uh, Pischke paper is extremely well-written. I think it's going to be out in the Journal of Economic Perspectives this month, uh, making a compelling case that randomization is the solution to the problem that I raised, or what seemed like a compelling case.
0: What does that mean, randomization? <laughs>
1: Uh, meaning that uh, in an experimental setting, you have purposeful randomization in which you're trying to decide whether fertilizer affects yields. So you randomly select plots of land, and some of them are get the fertilizers and the other ones don't. Then you look at the difference between the agricultural yields on the treated plots and the, and the uh, agricultural yields on the non-treated plots. That difference becomes a measure of uh, the impact of, of fertilizer on yields. And a statistician's only job in that kind of setting is to determine whether the data set is large enough that you have a so called statistically significant finding, or is it data set too small relative to the size of the effect that leaves us still leaves open the possibility that what you're observing is purely due to randomness and not a real effect. So that's the <clears throat> that's been the traditional view about um uh, experiments, that if you if you do the experimental design adequately you have ad- have important controls, so the kinds of things that um, that affect the the speed at which a feather falls are controlled for and not allowed to vary.
0: <laughs>
1: and then you do the randomization; you will get a uh, proper causal conclusion. To which, which I totally agree. There, there we, is. We
0: call that we call that science. That's that that science. Yes,
1: yeah, that would be science. Now, the problem with that is you've done that. You created that in a laboratory. And there's no assurance that that same laboratory effect is going to translate into the real world, particularly in economics, because we're talking about a social system in which you and I are looking over each other's shoulders and looking at each other, trying to decide how we're going to respond to various kinds of stimuli. And there's a social aspect to it, an expectational aspect too, which is something you brought to brought up a minute ago, that makes the transference of things that are found in a um in a laboratory with an experimental uh, method, uh, it makes it very difficult to transfer those into the real world. So those are what I would call purposefully randomized experiments, Perfect, pers- purposefully designed. The instrumental variables is a reference to accidental experiments in which you scurry around trying to find out something that is as if you had designed the experiment. And, um, and an example there is the... If you want to know what happens, what does immigration do to a uh, community? You look at the thousands of Cubans uh, when they fled Cuba. I forgot what the year was. Mario Boat left and went to Miami. You study the impact that that had on the Miami labor market, which is what uh, David Card has done.
0: With the, the argument One. being that since that was an exogenous event, meaning <clears throat> it was outside the the – it's, it, it, it's not correlated with anything else that we'd expect in Miami going on. It's not like, oh, things were great in Miami, so Castro let the people out, which would confound the statistical relationship. Or things were horrible in Miami, so he let them out. That is, It is just a random political event that is outside the causal relationships we're trying to study.
1: And, what, yeah, and, the, and the economists think of that then as being tantamount to the ideal randomized experiment. But then the, the problem with e, whether it's purposeful or random or, or uh, accidentally randomized, first of all, with regard to accidentally randomized, you, you brought up a point, which is the, there's no such thing as a really yeah, exhaustive really. variable. Correct, yeah. Because we don't know how much Castro was looking over to see what was happening in Miami. So there's a possibility that that boat lift was responding, as you suggested, to something that was happening in Miami. Any one of these instrumental variables is going to open up a conversation about whether it's really a legitimate uh, randomized treatment or whether it's correlated with the uh, response that you're trying to, uh, whose impact of the treatment you're trying to determine. Um, But the problem with the... Mario Boatlift is. What does it tell us about the impact of a of a of a uh, fence, a two thousand mile fence along the southern border of the United States? It doesn't seem like it tells us very much because it's so different. So, in other words, you may have found out the impact of immigrants under one certain circumstance, and but to translate that into the impact of immigrants to the U.S. or immigrants in other settings. Uh, that 's difficult that that takes the same kind of work that that uh, you need to do in order to draw conclusions from non experimental or observational data, which is you 've got to think long and hard about the circumstances that that have affected that outcome and have put control variables in that allow for that dependence
0: and we you know you and I did a podcast uh, a while back on macroeconomics and cer you know the, this boatlift immigration issue is um, is a microeconomic problem. But in macroeconomics, we're making that leap of faith all the time when we talk about aggregate demand. So when someone says, in the past, uh, $100 billion of spending had this such and such an impact on the American economy if there was this level of unemployment and this level of growth in the previous period, people are presuming that the same s- structural relationships that held when those estimates were made still hold. So <clears throat> even though... The cause of the recession might be totally different, even though what the money's spent on might be totally different. Implicit in those multiplier arguments is the presumption that it doesn't matter, which yeah, I find so very strange. So let's <laughs> be more
1: explicit. If you just look at uh, a correlation over time, it doesn't tell you anything about the uh, causal impacts. So you need something like a, r- a randomized experiment. If you want to know, is there a multiplier? Does government spending have a multiplier? And you need to have a treated group and a control group. You need to randomly subject an economy to a burst and spending, government spending, and look at see what happens to that economy in contrast to the control groups that did not get that spending. Now, in the case of macro, it's very, very difficult to think of what is the randomized experiment, whether it's purposeful or natural, uh, that we can use to make conclusions about the impact of uh, federal stimulus programs. The one that comes to mind is the is defense spending.
0: Right, end of war, start of war.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now Robert Barrows has used that. Yep, and uh, that's 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 interesting and uh, useful. It's clever and clever, and but which is a characteristic of this of this work by Angris uh, and Pischke and all their followers, which is it has all those. Uh, Terrible uh, adjectives, but at the same time, you kind of wonder whether the the um, apparent impact of defense buildup in World War II tells us anything about the kinds of uh, stimulus package that the Obama administration put together.
0: It doesn't seem to be have any relationship whatsoever. Well, I wouldn't say whatsoever, but would, it would seem to not be an automatic corollary.
1: No, it's, to me, I agree. I, my instincts are totally different until you tell me why they're... At all similar, I doubt that that's particularly relevant.
0: And I say that being very sympathetic to Barrow's conclusion, which is government spending doesn't have much of an impact, uh, or if it does, it's offset by the taxes that are raised later. So I'm philosophically and ideologically sympathetic to Barrow's conclusion, but I have to admit that the scientific nature of it for me is somewhat problematic. That didn't stop the people who are not sympathetic to his conclusion <laughs> from saying, "Oh, it's just totally wrong." They have their own estimates. So what I find remarkable about this, and and listeners will find this seem familiar, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, I find it unbelievably uh, bizarre that this so-called scientific work uh, by macroeconomists or microeconomists uh, on any of the policy issues we're talking about here, whether it's Keynesian stimulus or minimum wage or anything that we care about, uh, the effects on uh, quality of schooling from say expenditures an issue we talked about recently with with Diane Ravitch all these crucial social policy issues that we all have strong feelings about the empirical work no matter how careful no matter how clever doesn't seem to change anybody's mind who isn't already a believer and to me that means it's not science now, i understand that in science there's skepticism too it takes a while for even in the hardest sciences for like physics, for people to come around to alternative viewpoints, but it, I don't see it happening at all in economics. Do you? Am I missing no, I something I, here?
1: I think that, that you you brought up incentives, and I think that the um, the consumers of this work recognize that that there's real in, little incentive to um, get it right in a scientific sense. So there is an incentive to uh, reconfirm what you already believe. Uh, but there's also a belief that there's another side, that, that the other side of the argument could produce some kind of model, and I'll wait until I see the whole thing uh, worked out before I draw any firm conclusions. It's like a court of law in which you see the the plaintiff's argument, but you're not allowed to see the defendant. But you know that it's out there until you see the defendant, until you see this thing all worked out. Uh, <clears throat> you're not going to make a a, a, a a judgment on it.
0: Yeah, one of the remarkable things about that, of course, is that when you hear only one side, if you're sympathetic to that side, you're cheering the whole time the argument's being made. And you say, well, there's nothing the other side can possibly say yet they managed to, strangely enough. I used to read uh, Commentary Magazine, and Commentary Magazine has wonderful letters to the editor. So somebody would write an article making a set of strong claims, and the letters would savage the article, and you'd think – well, there's, the author doesn't have a leg to stand on. But strangely enough, the author would often respond at length and show why his antagonist didn't have a leg to stand on. And unless you're an insider, and even if you are an insider, sometimes there's no real way to choose in any objective sense. It's, um, you don't have enough information.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I tend to use aggressive language. So I, what I like to say is that... Uh, Economic theory is fiction, uh, sometimes good fiction and insightful and interesting or sometimes boring. But by its very nature, it's a fictional representation of the world, and it wouldn't be useful if it weren't. And e- econometric analysis is really uh, journalism. Mm. And uh, the journalist's job is to uh, marshal the facts as effectively as possible, put them together persuasively. But it's not science. It's fiction and journalism.
0: So, speaking of the other side, the people who swear by these techniques, and um, let's take Angerson uh, and Pishke as an example, what would they say in response to your criticism? Well,
1: the, the, those, Angerson and Pishke, would be, I think, totally sympathetic to my point of view. I, mean, I, I recognize the, I, I completely understand their point of view too, which is that randomization is great if you have it, and uh, and experiments can be highly useful. I just don't think any road, any single path is, the, is going to get us all enlightened. We need to recognize that there are many ways that we can create knowledge, insight, and wisdom. Uh, doing theories, one, and studying data sets is another, studying data sets in different ways. Each thing needs to be viewed with some respect. But to think that uh, <clears throat> designing experiments is going to uh, suddenly change economics, into uh, an empirical scientific discipline. That seems to me not likely to happen. That may be where we have some significant disagreement.
0: And as you say, often the the creators of techniques are less um, uh, enthusiastic than their followers. Uh, their followers and the followers of their followers tend to be uh, drinking the Kool-Aid and have forgotten all the admonishments of the creators about what they ought to be careful about and watch out for. And, but coming to this issue of incentives, it, it seems to me I, – I forget which where I read this. It might be in your response to Hanger Pishkey or it might be in the original uh, 1983 article, the Khan article. Uh, at one point, you make a mention of the fact that the only people who believe the results that come forth are the author. And how could that be? Do you find that strange? Uh, you know, I've gotten into the habit of asking people if they can name an econometric study, and by econometric I mean sophisticated econometrics, not the marshaling of facts. Can you name an econometric study that caused the profession to come to a consensus about something that was controversial? And most people struggle – most economists struggle to come up with an article like that. Um, some economists name their own work, uh, which <laughs> I find um, – Really extraordinary, you know. They'll say, "Well, you're right. Most most work's junk, but my work did settle this area over here because everybody recognizes it's great." And I think that's an illusion. Um, isn't it strange that in our field, so many people are spending so many hours churning out so much, uh, so many results that no one takes seriously?
1: Well, I'd like to make a distinction uh, between the process and the outcome here. I think the process helps us think better as an economist. Uh, Analyzing data sets, uh, complex, ambiguous settings that are hard to understand, the the process of analyzing the data set helps us think clearly. The the same thing is true with doing theory. That theory uh, carried out mindlessly is a total waste of time. But there, there are people who can do theoretical manipulations and and really make personal discoveries and and learn things through that process. So even though the final model might be silly, and even though the final econometric uh, table of T statistics might be totally irrelevant, still I think the process helps economists uh, form judgments, and, and the social conversations that we have also helps us collectively come to conclusions, often not the right ones necessarily, but at least I think there is some, Go for for progress
0: well let me let me sound a pessimistic note then i would agree with you in a world where we were sitting around in our togas at the faculty club thinking deep thoughts and trying to tease out or at least come to some understanding of these complex relationships it doesn't quite work that way uh, we're not supposed to tell but folks on the outside that it doesn't quite work that way what happens is, is that the more exotic and dramatic you're finding, the more likely it is that you'll be featured in the New York Times. Uh, and as a result, the university likes that. So there's a real bias toward uh, shocking claims, contrarian claims, uh, bizarre claims. In fact, let me let me give you an example that I saw recently and get your reaction. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had a piece on the front page of of its weekend section the other day about two weeks ago, three weeks ago that when Tiger Woods enters a tournament, uh, instead of encouraging people to try harder, they just give up. Uh, And the implication was is that our whole understanding of competition uh, has to be reconsidered because we usually think of competition as bringing out the best in people, people striving to meet the the high bar that, that a competitor provides. But with Tiger Woods, he's so dominant. He's so dominant that people just, they give up and as a result competition has this destructive effect and and then the lesson for that is like that's not enough like you think that's sort of i, I don't believe the result but and I'll tell you the the kind of metrics in a second but the that's not enough we've got to apply it to business <laughs> the implication is is that businesses shouldn't necessarily try to hire the very best people because if you bring in a superstar into your business people could just sit around and say well I'll never get a big bonus even if and for example, the, one of the examples given in the story was at General Electric, only the top 20% get the big bonuses. So a superstar could discourage people from striving to be in that top 20%. And I remember thinking, well, if they had – or actually, it wasn't my joke. It was a student of mine said, well, if they have five employees, I guess that would be true, one of five getting the big bonus, but they have more than five. And so the top 20% doesn't just include the best, single best person, the superstar like Tiger Woods. It, it, that's an absurd conclusion. And yet, here it was in the New York Times. It's based on, I think, an unpublished article by an economist at Northwestern who discovered that by carefully teasing out and controlling for, quote, all the relevant factors, when Tiger Woods enters a tournament, his opponents, are you ready for this? They score higher by eight tenths of a stroke. Not even a whole stroke, eight tenths of a stroke higher, meaning they perform worse because of the presence of Tiger Woods all this econometric firepower brought to bear to discover this result. And as, you know, being a semi-student of yours, my thought was how many regressions were run where the result was the other way that you didn't tell me? And unless I know that, why would I have any confidence in that finding?
1: Yeah, I agree. I've heard that paper presented, and and, um, I guess I'm not as skeptical with regard to the basic finding as you are, but skeptical about the interpretation. So I don't know if you're a golfer or not, but I I perceive my, my quality of golfing is much influenced by the people I play with.
0: Oh, there's no doubt. For example, I, when I told my colleague Don Boudreau about this finding, he said, well, sure, Tiger Woods discourages folks. He goes, I don't go into golf because Tiger Woods is there. Obviously, there's there's millions of Americans who've decided to take up other pastimes, including tennis, tennis. Uh, or economics because they don't think they can beat Tiger Woods. That's no doubt true. It's also true that if you're paired with him, just like if you were on the court with Larry Bird or Reggie Miller, two famous trash talkers in in, uh, basketball, it could affect your performance in in a negative way. It's not just that I'm going against Larry Bird tonight. I better bring my best game. I might, in the face of Larry Bird's game, I might regress toward a lower level. That is undeniably true. What I think is not true, and this is to me the more important social punchline. What is not true is that golfers who are already in the sport, they didn't give up when Tiger Woods came along. They worked incredibly harder. They started lifting weights for the first time. They stopped loafing. They practiced more. They put in more hours. So the implication, the statistical finding, which I find to be remarkably small, uh, that – eight. by the way, the author's Defends the finding by saying, well, many golf tournaments are settled by a single stroke. And I thought, well, but very few are settled by eight-tenths of a stroke. And I understand, it. I understand it's, it's only an average. Some golfers, of course, would be affected by a larger amount than that. That's, that's fine. But that's not the crucial point. The crucial point is, is that you'd want to – instead of comparing just as a side point – going back to our earlier discussion, the crucial issue here is going to be the fact that Tiger Woods doesn't enter all tournaments. That's the randomization. That's That's, the problem. That's the experiment that's in effect, has been created. He tends to enter the harder tournaments, and so you've got to control for the difficulty of the tournament. The course isn't the same. The placement of the pins aren't the same. And so the the economist, uh, I think it's Jennifer Brown, she, she did a lot of effort to control for that, and she's got... Dummy variables for the courses. She's got whether it's a major or not, which is all a good idea to control for that. But that, to me, isn't the real comparison. The real comparison, I don't know whether she did it well or not. It's hard to know. You'd have to look at all the different specifications, as you pointed out. To me, the harder question would be, let's look at golfers who were golfing before Tiger Woods came along and then after he came along. And let's see whether on the similar courses that they played on before and after, whether they took their game up a notch or whether they just sort of said, I'll never win
1: but her her analysis is is addressing a different question than the one that you just described so hers are within a given year uh, how do these players play in tournaments that Tiger is in versus the one that he's not it's not that they don't work harder and build up their muscles and their abilities as a consequence of Tiger being one of the competitors it's just that with the effect the, the what effect does Tiger have upon a play of his competitors within that tournament compared to a tournament next week, say in which he isn't there. And and I'm, I can easily see if I thought I was competitive with Tiger Woods, I saw him making some of those shots, impossible shots, I could easily be lulled into thinking I can make those same shots and giving it a try and end up harming my, my score as a consequence of that. That would be one mechanism. Well, it's all not kinds that I would of be things. making lower effort it would be that I would be encouraged to try things I couldn't really do
0: absolutely all kinds of things can happen you might have a larger variance you might take more chances because you figure I've I'm not going to win if I play my normal game I've got to take my game up a notch of course I might decide to play for third which is a whole separate issue because third does pay a lot in golf it doesn't pay as much as first and second but it pays a lot so I might even get more cautious thinking I can't win so there's a hundred there's a hundred things that the way people and I'm sure all hundred happen all, on the golf course even to the same golfer, they probably go through a, a whole up-and-down uh, set of emotions and strategies. And if you read um, Open by Andre Agassi, you can have a, there's a similar set of conversations that he has with himself when he had to play Pete Sampras. And Sampras was the dominant player of his, of his era, and he usually beat Andre Agassi, and it played with his head, and he talks about that. It's fascinating. But that's not the real question to me because the author of the piece in the journal – and the economists who wrote the original underlying study, they don't want to just show what happens to athletes in times of stress. They want to generalize it to general notions about competition. And I just, as yeah, I
1: agree, I agree with you completely on that. So it might be true. Um, She've done a DNA as well. I think let's all concede that she found out something anomalous with regard to a tiger impact. Uh, that's the experiment that you did in a kind of a laboratory. The question is how does that translate into other settings like the management of GE or General Motors, etc.? And I think you and I both think it doesn't tell us very much.
0: Even less than the Mariela Boatlift tells us about the immigration between Mexico and the United States. Possibly. I don't know how to
1: do a yeah. range.
0: But. <laughs> yeah, it's a point seven. It's simple. Um, going back to macro, do you find it interesting, or am I wrong – uh, do you see any soul-searching going on in the profession about these macroeconomic relationships at, in the aftermath of the crisis? You have some very interesting in, – in your response to uh, Angrist and Pischke, which is going to be published in the Journal of Economic Perspectives as well, uh, you, you talk about some of the things that we c- realized we didn't understand about, say, home prices and and macroeconomic activity. Do you think other economists are having some of those wake-up calls?
1: Um, I think probably not. I think we, we have a way to live, continue to live in our own little cocoons and and uh, think of the financial crisis and the issue of uh, how to devise policy in the midst of all that as somebody else's problem. It doesn't really affect our conceptual frameworks, and off we go.
0: So you don't think um, macroeconomic empirical work is going to be much affected by this?
1: The odd thing is the huge swing on, on the professional standpoint away from <clears throat> uh, monetarist uh, rational expectations model in, f- in favor of simple Keynesian models, and uh, without any basis for that. Uh, I'm not saying everybody has swung that way, but it's surprising how how many in a profession have been endorsing these uh, seamless packages.
0: That is, uh, yeah. Um, See, I
1: think too I think I know the answer about how the economy works too I, I think that um, <laughs> oh good tell uh, us help, please share it
0: don't, don't keep it to yourself okay, so we all like to know
1: in a healthy economy uh, if someone loses their job it doesn't precip- precip- uh, precipitate more job loss but uh, when the uh, economy becomes unhealthy then you get a negative feedback loop meaning that some job loss generates further job loss and the government needs to help prevent that negative feedback loop by putting in place uh, demand management, but only during those few episodes in which that negative feedback loop is very evident. And, for example, now we're in a um, the self-healing phase of the of the economy in, in which uh, the job of the government should be entirely to leave the private sector to take care of the, the uh, all the decision-making and to eliminate the uncertainty that the federal government is creating
0: yeah the the problem is is that one of the major pieces of the stimulus package was to extend unemployment insurance, which kind of tangles up this relationship that you're suggesting between um, looking for work in times of economic unhealth and there being a negative feedback we We decided to pay people not to look for work uh to make it cheaper to be unemployed but we gave them money, which if you're a Keynesian, says that makes up for the fact that they're not employed and keeps aggregate demand going. Kind of a messy uh, system there to, to separate out, I guess.
1: Yeah, totally. I thought you were going to come down with an opinion on that. I think we're edging very close to an opinion, just like I've expressed my opinion, which is um, all opinion and, and uh, no data be- be- lying behind
0: it. And what, what, where did you think I was heading?
1: I thought you were going to say that the that this extension of unemployment benefits was increasing the unemployment rate.
0: I think it does. That's my, my presumption. As a did, see, I believe demand curve slope downward. So to me, when you pay people, of course, there's other things going on. It's hard to know, you know, what else is changing at the same time. Uh, but I'm just making a remark about the challenges of of predicting accurately what what's going to happen. A lot of people justified those unemployment. Uh, insurance extensions on the grounds of aggregate demand, they kind of forgot about the fact that it encouraged people not to look as hard as they otherwise would. So measured unemployment could stay high for a long time. Now, I don't think that's the only reason measured employment is, is kind of responding very slowly to the recovery of the economy. But it, it is a measure. It is part of the problem, and it's interesting to me that people use the unemployment rate as the only measure of what's worked sometimes, as the only measure of what's working.
1: I, I agree that I think demand uh, curves generally slope downward but the long run can be different from the short run so if you put in place incentives that uh, that uh, pay enormous benefits if you're unemployed in the long run you' definitely get more unemployment But I just think in a in a context of a cycle um, people tend to think of themselves as, as either working or not working and that Personal categorization is not impacted much by whether they lost a job or the benefits that they might be receiving. They're out there hoping they're going to get a job back if they lost one, yeah, but and you and I need to do this some data analysis to either find out find out who's right here
0: yeah and and of course they're the uh going back to our earlier discussion of eagle feathers versus duck feathers versus windy day humidity, et cetera. We might expect that in the aftermath of a construction collapse, a housing market collapse, that unemployed construction workers might be in a, an unusual situation relative to, say, past downturns that were more general. Um, about a quarter of the f- people who are unemployed uh, since the peak of the since the start of the recession in December 07 are in construction, and they are going to have a tr- they're going to have a hard time. Trying to figure out whether they should stay in construction or not, whether they should try something different, what that might be. There's just a lot of uncertainty and, and imperfect information out there.
1: Yeah, I agree with that, all that.
0: Okay, well, let me let me turn to a different question, which is a pedagogy an educational question. Um, so, I teach a a class on how to think about numbers. It's not an econometrics class. It's a class about how to be skeptical uh, about. Statements that you see about these relationships and what we've been talking about, the way people mislead, the way people deceive, the way journalists, actual journalists, misreport empirical findings with a level of confidence and certainty that that isn't justified. And when I teach those students, um, I'm shocked. And I teach journalists the same principles, trying to get them to be a little more skeptical. One of the tenets – and I do this with with an eye toward – you know, boy, people sure take a lot of these things on faith because they're in a peer-reviewed journal. They assume it's science, and they just print these relationships. Um, a lot of them don't hold up on when they're when they're looked at again. A lot of them don't hold up when it's a different database. A lot of them don't hold up when it's done when it happens ten years later. These relationships. So I always I feel very good about teaching people to be skeptical. But one of the lev- one of the responses I get is they then say, well. All empirical work is garbage. <laughs> you know, th- th- there's a tendency to now just dismiss everything as well. You know, they can always find some relationship in the data. There's a big confirmation bias problem. There's a problem that journals only publish generally only publish positive results. find if I find nothing, it's hard for me to get that published. So I should be s- not just skeptical. I should be dismissive. What would you respond to that?
1: Well, I, I don't know if you are aware of it, but I wrote this book called Macroeconomic Patterns and Stories.
0: Yeah, we talked about it. We did a podcast on it. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, which a book I love. Oh, thank you very
1: much. And I, there I'm trying to argue that we need them both. We need both the stories, which are the economic theories, but we need pattern-seeking as well. But the word pattern, it doesn't carry the scientific manipulation that econometrics carries. So you look at the data sets to see if you can confirm or... Or deny the 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 things that you're thinking about theoretically, and the two of them working together, I think, can really help us uh, form opinions. Now, this isn't scientific truth, but but all we have in the area, especially of macro, is opinions, and they're either persuasive, well thought out opinions, or not well thought out. My my concern, I, a problem that I give, I, I teach a, a course that I call uh, "Turning Numbers into Knowledge." Which is probably similar to yours, but the final and it's all macro-oriented. The final exam is for the students to read the testimony from the Federal Reserve Chairman to Congress and pick out of that long document a sentence or a paragraph, and then look at data sets to see whether they can confirm or cast doubt on that opinion. Uh, and and it's the, it's a process that really gets them thinking about the things that are have been written down and and the and the uh, the data that may or may not lie behind it. I mean, my concern is that the profession is way too heavy toward theory and has, and in the area of macro, I think, has completely ignored an enormous database that could have an impact on how we understand the economy. Not not that the people haven't estimated equi- models, but they've imposed a particular structure on the data, a straitjacket, which has prevented them from uh, learning about uh, how this complex economy actually evolves.
0: What straitjacket is that?
1: You give me your model, overlapping generations model, uh, a rational expectations model, a Keynesian model, which is all the forecasting models are simple Keynesian models. And then so you commit yourself to a particular conceptual framework. I, I'll give you an example. I, I wrote a paper saying housing is the business cycle. And to me, as a forecaster and understanding digging into the details of the cycle, housing is absolutely critical. And um, first of all, it's a it's a great leading indicator, but it also plays a large fraction, contributes a large fraction of the problem. You said construction jobs; that's a large fraction of every one of the downturns that we've had. There's not a single textbook that mentions housing in the in macroeconomics.
0: Yeah, and it's my impression that that paper of yours, by the way. I, I may have mentioned this before because I I found that paper very provocative. And one of the parts I loved in it is where you say, you know, I have a great um, uh, disadvantage in writing this paper, which is I'm not a macroeconomist. And then you said, and I also have a great advantage, which is I'm not a macroeconomist. So you came to that question as a student of data and you said, you know, basically if you look at the data without the lens – of a straight jacket, without the – to mix metaphors badly, but without the uh, – the a bias or a – I don't have a horse in this race, you said, basically. I'm, I'm not a Keynesian. I'm not a Austrian. I'm not a rational expectations guy. I'm not a monetarist. I just look at the data. It kind of shouts. It screams that housing has something to do with almost every cyclical downturn uh, of the 20 – of the post-war era, I think, was the period you looked at, right? right. So – Here's what's interesting: You are a very skilled and respected data analyst. You're not a skilled and respected macroeconomist. You are. You have an expertise. I'm talking about now, sort of reputational credibility, right? Yeah. You, I'm not not trying to insult you.
1: No, I totally agree. In fact, the category might be annoying rather than uh, skilled and uh, with and <laughs> with a high
0: reputation. And you've got you've got. A reputation in the area of international trade where you've done a lot of creative and respected work on trade relationships. But in business cycle theory, you don't have a name. But you are really good at numbers. What's interesting to me is I don't think any macroeconomist saw your paper and said, Whoa, you know, I've been kinda I've lost the forest for the trees, or you know, this is something that's kind of important. Or am I wrong? Has any Did any of them... So no, that's
1: totally true. Marty Feldstein told me he really liked the paper, and he didn't know that about housing. And...
0: Um, an honest man.
1: <laughs> an honest man. And, uh, another person whose name I won't tell you, a prominent macroeconomist, expressed his annoyance by saying, oh, he already knew all that stuff. To which I said, well, why didn't you write it in the book, the book you wrote? And he said, oh, I, it's in there somewhere, something
0: like that. A Another one I won't name uh, dismissed it as... Um, I won't use – I won't tell you the word that he used. He just said – he implied basically you had no idea what you were talking about. And I thought, well, but you're not really saying you knew anything about what you were talking about. He said, like, this is what's there. You can you can say it's not true anymore. You can say it's overstated. But you can't say it's not relevant, it seems to me. I mean, what's the – what would they – do they have a different answer?
1: I don't know. Are you, you've done these interviews. Maybe <laughs> you know. <laughs> I have to start uh, <coughs> compiling all this. I think it's more of the uh I don't know, benign neglect. Yeah, it's part the of the it. reaction.
0: It's a little odd though, given that virtually every macroeconomist in the world would concede that housing had something to do with this downturn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you you can you, I mean it, there there's an interesting um an interesting question. Uh as to how much of it was due to the feedback loops between housing and the financial sector, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, but nobody denies that that housing was a precipitating factor here. So having looked at your paper, again, not with a scientific eye, I'm not an expert on housing or uh, business cycle theory, but having looked at your paper, I thought, wow, that paper was written when? When did you write 2007, that? 2007, I guess. Right? So people, you'd think, you'd say, wow, this guy was a real prophet. He was, you know, at the very beginning of this problem – He happened to have lifted a rock up and said, whoa, look at all this junk under here. Housing's really important. And you'd think you'd get a lot – I don't mean to depress you, but you'd think you'd get a little more um, attention for that paper.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I don't even like to talk in front of those characters because they have their own um, sort of thought police or or, – You know, conceptualization police that force you to do the kind of work that they do; otherwise, they treat you with disdain. And I, I, I have uh, for a long time marched my own drummer here.
0: Yeah, that helps.
1: It uh helps, but it's sometimes a lonely kind of thing here.
0: Yeah, no, uh, I'm I'm doing what I can to get you a few people <laughs> marching behind you. Uh, okay. But I I do find it, uh, and, and and I have to confess, of course that um in my own personal odyssey of being coming increasingly skeptical of empirical work, you know, it's my own flavor of confirmation bias that I find your work so uh compelling. If I don't remember what I thought of your work in 1995 or 1985, but I might have said ah, oh, you know, it's true there's some problems, but hey, you got to do something. That that I think is the main uh intellectual justification for for continuing to do what we've been doing as economists. You know, okay, sure, the world's imperfect and our models don't always work right, but you got to do something. And my answer is, well, but not always. Sometimes you should just shut up and say, I don't know, which is one of your themes.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. That's humility is what I think we need to have as a profession and and, uh, be satisfied and happy with the real progress that we make but uh, not to imagine that we're ever going to get to a level of scientific certitude the way that you might in engineering or in physics or chemistry, where you have a lot more control over the circumstance
0: than we do. Yeah, I, I, coming back to our earlier point, I don't think there's much incentive for economists to admit that. So, if anything, it goes the other way. If you want to get in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, you got to be uh, you got to be overconfident. Not uh, humility. Humility doesn't help you get there.
1: You no, know, I think that's very different over the last decade than it was before cuz you know a, a decade ago or 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 beyond that there were very few economists who were uh, referred to in these major uh, national outlets. So maybe the internet has had some impact with all the blog stuff that's going on, but most people were happy to happy with their anonymity working away in their offices.
0: Yeah, that's a whole other issue. I I don't think there's any doubt that our profession has become radically changed by the opportunities for fame and fortune that didn't exist 25 years ago, and you know, 25 years. Let's go back. Let's go back 40, 30, 40 years ago. 30, 40 years ago, there were two famous economists who were living economists: Milton Friedman and Paul Samuelson. They had, each had a column in Newsweek, um, and they were the. If, if you ask people to name economists, that's who they could come up with today an enormously larger group of of economists uh make either money directly or indirectly get some fame from the internet from speaking publicly from writing for magazines etc uh, the number of co- of, e- of economists who have who have newspaper columns who you know you can start with Paul Krugman is an is an obvious dramatic example uh the New York Times has a set of columnists who are economists who write including my colleague Tyler Cowen, The Blogosphere which has increased awareness of economists. Steve Levitt uh is now an is an enormously famous economist. People think free economics which is indirectly what we've been talking about today, the use of sophisticated econometric technique. Uh that's highly been incredibly lucrative which is, you know, more power to him. But but the but the opportunities to do those kind of things Have just totally changed in the last thirty or forty years, and it's um, although it's made for a lot of entertainment, and people are much larger consumers of economics. I'm not sure it's led to a lot more truth.
1: Yeah. See, I was trying to think. I was sitting here thinking about the good aspects to it because it it keeps us in touch with real world issues. But um,
0: is that the best you can do?
1: Best I can do <laughs>
0: well i think you know my claim i've made this here before my claim is this is the golden age of economic education that by reading you know, in the old days you had to read uh people would say you know they'd ask me you know i want to learn economics what should i read there were a handful of books you could recommend now there's 30 books you can recommend of people who write for a general audience there's 10 blogs that are Full of interesting information and thought, many of which are not sensationalists, many of which are actually people trying to figure out how the world works and interact with data in in the kind of ways I think you are advocating, where you're not making extravagant claims. You're actually saying, here's what I think we know. Here's what we don't know. There are a lot of thoughtful people out there writing. There's no charge for it, typically. You can get it at zero monetary cost on the web. Um, And uh, that's – I think that's probably a good thing.
1: I think it is, too. I think maybe the problem, you know, uh, our genera- we went through a, a generation of economists who are basically theorists who um, were allowed to, uh, to have very little contact with the real world. So a little more isn't such a bad thing.
0: My guest today has been Ed Lemur of UCLA. Ed, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be with you again.